When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Calm Versations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Calm Versant is Charles Haywood, who is the maximum leader of The Worthy House. The Worthy House is an online publication where Charles shares his thoughts disguised as book reviews, and he maps the right-wing or anti-left sphere. I find his writing and his rhetoric and the way that he performs his writing and his podcast version of The Worthy House to be scintillating, entertaining, and thought-provoking, to say the very least. In this conversation, we talk about his worldview, his psychology, his spirituality, and what makes him tick. Absolutely check out his work linked in the description below. Without further ado, here is Charles Haywood. I try to avoid getting too crotchety. Um, the problem is that the such a target-rich environment <laughs> and, 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 and being sniping at people is always, you know, it's, it's easy thrills. So it's, it's hard to avoid all the time. Yeah, it makes it, yeah, pugilistic is and, and entertaining is a couple of yeah. words that I used to describe you well i i, I do my best yeah i'm a bit brighter there okay so uh, do you mind if we just dive in and not at all pal around while we do so um yeah. i you succinctly describe your enemy which is the left having two principles one being the forced equality of all people and the total emancipation from all bonds not continuously chosen yes and while those taken to the radical extreme um are certainly corrosive to society and that's what we're watching happening right now don't we want a little bit of choice don't we want a little bit of equality right even equality of opportunity so-called which is even problematic sure i mean but that's a false dichotomy right to say that the left uh is desires the elimination of all unchosen bonds does not mean that we should have nothing but unchosen bonds. So there, there's, <laughs> there, there's a happy middle ground. This is, I mean, this has been well understood for thousands of years in the Western and perhaps in, in Eastern traditions as well. I only say perhaps because I'm you know, not up on Confucianism or Buddhism or, or what have you. But this idea that, that true freedom consists in living a rightly ordered life a mix of liberty and restraint is yeah, not exactly right, either rocket science or new. The the new thing is the left's desire to, to to turn the dial to eleven on the emancipation. Not that we should have have a reasonable amount of emancipation. I mean, obviously, the Greeks spent an inordinate amount of time complaining that X, Y, or Z made a man a slave. Now they meant both overt slavery as well as being a slave to one's passions and so on. But what they wouldn't have said is the solution to a man being a slave to his passions is to have the government stop it. <laughs> I mean, he was free to do that, but he was supposed to choose not to be a slave. So obviously individual choice, you can't run a society without having a large degree of individual choice. Though at the same time, I think there should be uh, a, a wide range of things that are, are 
uh, if not forbidden by the government, stigmatized by society. And that's also the enforcement mechanisms for things that you're not free to do are also important. Yeah. So how, how does one begin like with a positive vision of like order and then which would be restraint and then choice or emancipation? Like where, where would you start to seed that value well, system? You never start from a standing start, right? You know, the, the, uh, the state of nature where we all decided to meet and talk about how it was going to be is obviously a, a, a fiction. So the problem is that it differs for every society. Our society being so radically diseased and to one side of the spectrum faces a totally different challenge than, say, a society that has just gotten rid of John Calvin <laughs> and needs to needs to perhaps loosen up a bit uh, would face, right? I mean, so, so you, the and of course, the society at the same time faces a wide variety of other tensions and problems within the society. That is, this is not a united society or a society that has really even a significant amount of common loves anymore, any common goals for that matter. Hmm. So where one gets started on these things is hard to say because right now you can't just wake up in the morning and declare the era of emancipation is over and the era of less emancipation starts today. And we'll let you know what that means. And I mean, these things are obviously far more organic than that. They typically, however, on a kind of decadal, if that's a word, decadal, over decades, uh, basis, I think, would start from a society that is in chaos or some kind of fracture with very small groupings. I mean, you're obviously the, the smallest grouping traditionally in this sense in terms of... Uh, policing behavior, for lack of a better term. I mean, the term policing behavior has a bad connotation nowadays, but it shouldn't. I mean, everyone's behavior should be policed. If you're not policing your behavior at all, things have gone very bad for everybody. Though, of course, many people don't police their behavior, which is part of the reason we're here. But the family is the smallest unit of policing behavior. And by family, I don't mean so much the 1950s kind of distortion of nuclear family where what your parents or your aunts and uncles or your cousins may have to say has nothing to do with it. The extended family is really the basic unit of policing behavior. And informing that, typically when you have a society that does a reasonable job of restraint, is religious belief. I mean, it's, I mean you're, it, it's an overused example, but the Amish are obviously the best example of this in kind of the modern American context. You may not want to be Amish. In fact, I was talking to a guy who lives among Amish the other day, and he said that Amish converts, converts to being Amish are so rare that it's like news in five states when, <laughs> when there's an actual Amish convert. But the, the idea of having a society that basically polices behavior, not by putting people in jail or making things illegal, though obviously that's necessary for some things, but simply by setting expectations is really the only way to run a society that, as it, those groups get larger, has some commonality and can and can be run run on a, in a coherent basis. And what that would look like, I would say, for, for any successful society can vary pretty widely. I mean, that doesn't mean there's no like magic... You know, ideological perfection where he, this is the level, these are the behaviors, everything is perfect now and we can declare victory. I mean, everything is always going to be a continually shifting thing where you're just trying to hit the target and not miss too much. Yeah. So if you look, look at the landscape right now, the ideological landscape right now, maybe uh, I could uh, 
preface it by saying Jordan Peterson comes on the scene and speaks directly, kind of more or less directly to young men. And he wakes up. I, I'm continually finding a lot of people, a lot of young people in their 20s and 30s who he he instigated some sort of awakening or mm-hmm. empowerment uh, towards self uh, self-sacrifice and self-responsibility. And you have you have this kind of growing or latent field of people who want to build something, who, who look at the licentiousness of, of pride, let's say pride month and, and just like sexual licentiousness Mm -hmm. being forwarded by the same people who want to, um, buckle down on free speech, buckle down on bigotry, right? So, so they want to control your behavior in certain respects and then give you free li- license in, in other respects. And it seems so extreme. They want some sort of middle ground. They want, they want to opt in to some sort of self-regulating behavior. If you were just to speak to that kind of very diverse group of young people who, who still have a lot of motivation, who still have a lot of ambition, what would you kind of lay in their path? Like if you want to urge them towards one thing or another thing, like towards one religion or another religion or one kind of value set or another set, what would you, where would you yeah, begin? I mean, I think the, before I get to that, it's important to note that to the extent that the society or the left is, is constraining certain kinds of behavior that is viewed as bigotry, that those buckets are only things that are antithetical to the overall left values of emancipation. So I, I wouldn't say that's constraint in the traditional sense that, huh. that we're talking about it, about it here. But I think that, and, and I'll, I'll, I'm getting to the question, the, the, the kind of tragedy of Jordan Peterson, who I admire a great deal, is that he's dropped this, that he's dropped appealing to young men or any deliberate attempts to appeal to young men. And so therefore, at least in my experience talking to people, uh, the amount of people that he's able to influence in that way directly, though obviously his, his books are still out there, has sadly very much dropped off. And this is, you, know, you can tell this is true by the fact that the, the regime or the left no longer attacks Peterson because he's no longer a, a threat in the sense of inspiring young men, which was the danger that Peterson brought to the table, that is, Historically, societal changes are wrought by dissatisfied young men who want something different. So I think that the the difficulty for young men today, and I have sons, I have several sons of, of varying ages and so on. So this is a real live question for me. The difficulty for young men today is there is no clear path. There's really no, there's very few career paths for example, well, let me step back. I'll start with the religion. I mean, I endorse Christianity because I'm Christian and I think Christianity is the true religion. So, but uh, uh, at the same time, I think that a, a someone is, if you want to pick a, a completely different religion, uh, that is infinitely preferable. And pick makes it sound like you're picking from a smorgasbord. I don't mean to suggest that necessarily. But any set of religious beliefs is going to help you restrict your licentiousness, unless it's a stupid set of religious beliefs. I mean, there are plenty of Christian brands, for example, which do not, in fact, provide any kind of moral framework that other than the framework that's on offer in the popular culture. And that's just a waste of your time. But I'm talking like a serious religious framework. For example, I have a friend who went off and disappeared one day and I, I hunted him down through his son years, a couple of years later and turned out he had become a Buddhist monk and wasn't taking emails anymore. So if you want to be a Buddhist monk, you know, that, that probably is a pretty good way of, of uh, fighting back against the, the culture of being countercultural. But so I, I think you should pick up a serious religion and you should study your religion seriously and practice your religion seriously. But in terms of, so I think that is probably the most countercultural thing you can do. But the fact is that unless you're a monk, 
you're not going to spend all your day in religious behaviors. I mean, it should color your life. It should dictate what you do in many of life circumstances. But young men need to have a career. And by career, I don't mean a career like a white collar career where you have a career. I mean that you have to do something with your life that involves uh, giving meaning to you, providing for the people that you are expected to provide for, and uh, hopefully leaving the world a better place when you leave than when you arrived. So in other words, the opposite of sitting around smoking weed and watching porn and playing video games after you work for two hours in your online job. So I think the it, it, this is extremely difficult for young men. I've written a, um, a couple pieces on advice to the young and uh, talking about one, one of the things that always comes up is should people go into manual work of some kind, <clears throat> kind whether as a sideline or as a as a main line and so on. So I, I have various forms of advice to uh, to to young men, but I think the all of them are all of the advice to young men is in a sense unsatisfying because the current. If you, if you become a devotee of Jordan Peterson and you want to follow his rules, you can do that in your own personal life. But when you step out the door and you interact with the broader world, especially if you're trying to work in a white collar set of jobs, nothing you do that is Jordan Peterson-esque, if it can be identified as that, will be treated with anything but hostility by the vast majority of people that you encounter, by the HR harridans, by the, you know, harpy that's your boss, what have you, by all your friends, too, who are sitting around smoking weed and watching porn and so on. So it, 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 young men are basically in a holding pattern. That is, until society changes significantly, it's very difficult for young men to find a path in life that offers actual meaning. That's not always true. I mean, if you, for example, I have a friend whose son is extremely interested in architectural ironwork. That's what he wants to do. So that's his talent. He's good at it. That's probably an outstanding career path path right now. But traditionally, there used to be options like the military. But obviously, who wants to go into the military now? I mean, that's just you know, crazy talk if you want to go into the... No young man looking for meaning and doing the things that the military typically provides you would be well advised to do that nowadays. So uh, the, the honest answer is I don't have a great set of answers. You can improve yourself all you want, and you should improve all yourself. You, you should, and you should do all the things. You should eat right. You should lift weights. All the stuff that gets gets uh, press as being fascistic. But again, that doesn't that that will probably make you happy. It'll probably keep you from being as depressed as you might be if you weighed three hundred pounds and smoked a lot of weed. But it, it doesn't it doesn't give you. You're not part of an overarching societal framework. And until again society changes significantly, that's going to be an ongoing problem. Well, that's the problem then. Until society changes, and societies usually change by young men changing Correct. society, right? So that, that's the feedback loop. So is <laughs> is it our responsibility as Gen X to just describe the cracks, or or to you know send them into the breach, as it were? Well, the problem is that look, I, I, I'm all for sending young men to the breach in the right circumstances. But the, the I'm a big fan, as you probably know, of theories of regime fragility. That is, I am on team fragility as opposed to team turbo America. I expect the, the current regime to fracture in the in the quite near future and for opportunities to arise. But you can't create those opportunities. And historically, what happens with young men who are dissatisfied and seek meaning is they, they tend to turn to either 
dissolute behavior, just thinking it's all not worth it, or forms of propaganda of the deed. Uh, I was uh, I actually just did a review uh, of Ernst Jünger's The Glass Bees, which is a fictional work. Um, but it, 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 it he describes in there, uh, you'd have to get the backstory, but basically a guy who commits suicide in what is fundamentally, though it's not portrayed so in the book, uh, interwar Germany, where a lot of young right-wing men were extremely unhappy. And uh, a guy who commits suicide because he thinks it's going to show show people how self-sacrifice is needed in order to make a change. And he, he just, you know, he's just dead. <laughs> Nothing changes. So pushing against the cracks when the cracks aren't open isn't a, isn't a useful thing for young men to do. I think you, young men should be preparing to lead lives of virtue and leadership in the future. It's just that there's no avenues for that right now, so it necessarily creates an extremely frustrating environment. But there's really no path for a young man to... Look, I'm a huge fan of the electoral justice protest, the January 6th electoral justice protest. I think it it, you know, it was indicative of a variety of regime, uh, regime fragilities and, and, and so on. But the fact is that it didn't actually accomplish anything in terms of you know, pushing at the cracks, and the regime didn't fall as the result of January 6th. So protesting per se is isn't really a winning strategy at the right moment it's a it's a hundred percent winning strategy and that as i've frequently talked about is one of the things that the main thing that toppled the 1989 in 1989 toppled the eastern european communist regimes mass street protests but it, those things have to develop organically you can't wake up in the morning and say today i'm going to lead a street protest and the regime is going to collapse because the secret police are going to scurry for the exits <laughs> unfortunately that's not the way history works yeah. If, if you're speaking to revolutionaries in waiting, then one, one piece of it or one set of advice is how to be, how to wait, how to, how to hold, hold the line, how to prepare. And then the other uh, set of advice would be when action is uh, imminent, how to act, how to, how yes. to not uh, do, uh, how to do more of an American revolution rather than a French revolution, perhaps? Well, absolutely. I mean, the French Revolution was a disaster, starting with its ideological underpinnings. But the fact is that all revolutions, I mean, the old joke is that everyone who, who calls for a revolution imagines the revolution will happen around him while he stays perfectly in place with nothing changing for him. And that's not yeah. the way it, work, it works in real life. But you know, I'm a big Lenin fan, um, and not in the sense of like, I think Lenin is is uh, is you're probably having a happy afterlife, but it's, uh, but that the, the uh, that Lenin had many qualities that one can learn from, and one of them was this waiting. I mean, Lenin, I mean, he worked while he was in waiting, but he spent an awful lot, and he, obviously, Lenin's the guy who flipped a coin 20 times in a row and it came up heads each time. Many different things could have happened and we would never, no one would remember Lenin. Mm. But he, he was extremely disciplined about waiting, using his resources appropriately, not getting sucked into doing things because... He felt like he needed to do something to, you know, because the people, they need it. You know, he was just very disciplined. Uh, one of my favorite Lenin episodes is Obscure, where basically in the, the Finnish Civil War, the Reds were fighting the Whites soon after the Bolsheviks came to power. And in Russia, the, the, many of the Bolsheviks were demanding that Lenin send troops to help the Finnish Reds. And he, he said something, I can't remember it exactly, but basically sarcastic, like, like, I don't have any spare armies right now. Um, you know, instead of like splitting, he did like, well, we're just not going to do that because it's not mm. practical. Even though ideologically, uh, people who are ideologically motivated said he had to do it. He's like, that's not practical. And I think most people, many people nowadays, and this is a function of, and this is true for young men, but for everybody, but since we're talking about young men, 
The problem is that young men have forgotten a lot of things. Their education tends to be terrible. To the extent they know stuff, it's autodidacticism, which can be very good. But the fact that you see this frequently in things like Andrew Tate, uh, you, you see this in, in men's relationships with women. That is, they, they sense that the proper mode of life, whether it's with respect to women or anything, waiting, revolution, who knows, is, is gone. But they don't know what the proper mode of life is. And they, they know certain external manifestations of what the proper modes of life have been that have worked for other people and other societies in the past. But those aren't the modes of life. And those are organic. That is, the, you know, to, to, to replay the 1950s, as um, I think it was uh, A.P. Hartley said, the, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And so the 1950s, to re recreate the external manifestations of, the, of what you think the 1950s were like in your relationships with women is not a winning strategy. And worse is some of the Andrew Tate kind of stuff. I mean, I, I have a little truck with, with Andrew, Andrew Tate, though I, I see why young men are, are attracted to some of his ideas. So it's this, this, this seems to me, whether it's, we're talking about revolution or change or what have you, people gravitate to things that they, they think are indicative of the way they should be behaving, but they don't understand that everything is simply the external window dressing, what's, what's being generated by some organic thing that is harder to see. And you can't just recreate those things from scratch. It's very hard. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Have you thought about investigating the romantic aspect, like how men could be or should be in this time, in this place? I'm actually writing a women? piece. Uh, I am writing a piece uh, on marriage now, which I will have published uh, in, uh, if all things, uh, are you familiar with Raw Egg Nationalist? Yes. So, so he has a magazine, Men's World. So I intend uh, to, in the next issue of, of Men's World, to have a piece on marriage, which uh, will, will have input from my, my wife as well. I have an extremely successful marriage. <laughs> so I hope to, I hope to uh, at least, I, I sure hope it is. And it, all, all signs point to it being very successful, unless that, that noise I hear in the background is my wife packing. So, uh, and so we'll, we'll, she and I will, will work up this piece together, uh, but she tends to be very involved in uh, the background of a lot of the stuff that I do, though she's not you know, an attention seeker like me. And uh, I, I'm hoping this piece will be of use as a Gen Xer to, uh, to some of these, uh, these younger, younger men in how they should approach things. Again, writing opinion pieces is not manifesting an organic whole, but can't hurt. Yeah. Are you willing to breach some of that? Uh, like, what is the content of a good marriage? How do you know? Well, I, I, what are you I, looking for? I just started it, um, and but the way I typically write is I just throw things at the page, and then I'm like, "What the hell is this? This is all crap!" And then just like, shoomph, like come, it comes together. So it hasn't come together yet, um, but I think there's uh, so I, I can't really like give give highlights at, at this point. Um, but I don't think I honestly don't think that having a a good marriage is is that hard in the sense that the now it can be obviously if you marry the wrong person it can be it can be nightmarish but leaving that aside you hear people say all the time that while well, marriage is hard and you always have to work hard at it and 
I just don't think that's true. I mean, I think I don't think it's true for most people with 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 the right the right kind of marriage. Probably the the number the, the most important thing I, I would say for a well, maybe not the most important thing, but an important thing, and this is something my wife and I have talked about, is that you have to have separate but overlapping spheres, and you don't want isolated spheres either. That is, you and you see this, for example, in in men who. We're getting kind of deep into the weeds here, but men who insist that that they maintain all the uh, family's financial books and uh, and that the woman has little or nothing to do with them. And that, I mean, for, ever since we got married, I insisted, even though I have a you know finance degrees and stuff, and my my wife is less of a numbers person, I insisted, and and she totally agreed that that she do all the household bookkeeping because then she knows what what's going on. It's, uh, we know, we, I know all these people who they don't do that and, and it makes no sense. So you have to have complementary spheres. And this goes in some of the other stuff that I've written on, but, but fundamentally women should not have careers. Uh, that is you know, a, a house, a marriage where both the husband and the wife try to have a career in the sense of a, you know, a striving career is, uh, is an extremely bad, bad idea. But these are just random you know, scenes from the upcoming piece. I, I may have more yeah. useful things to say. We'll see. Hopefully I will. Why should women not have a, her own career? Or why, why, why do two partners, why is it deleterious or um, negative on the relationship for two people to be striving? Well, I mean, because men and women are fundamentally different. The the internal drives of men are to succeed and to protect and to provide. As I always hector my sons, uh, what is a father's duty? To which they recite, uh, first to fight, last to flee. And so uh, so the, the job of a man is to protect and to provide, and a man gets self-actualization. I'm sure that's probably the first and last time I'll ever use that term in a positive context. But self-actualization from doing those things. And in the modern world, that means typically, or for many people, having a career. It may also mean having some other kind. I mean, career typically conjures up images of working in an office or what have you. But a career can mean a number of things. It can be truck driving or something that's more traditionally viewed as blue collar, or it can be you know, any number of things. Um, so, and by the same token, a man is emasculated and feels is not self-actualized if, uh, if his wife attempts to compete with him in those regards. Moreover, the wife then falls down in her responsibilities, which tend to be our necessity should be, you know, for a flourishing society, have to be focused around the internal dynamics of the family, both nuclear and extended. So in short, the husband should have the a more public facing role and the wife should have the more private inward facing role. That doesn't mean the woman has to like wear a burqa and, you know, sit in, you know, uh, what's that purda, I guess was the old uh, old term in the Middle East for for seclusion of women. Uh, and obviously, that's the, the accusation that's thrown at you if you push this kind of separation. But everybody should play to his or her strengths. And when you pretend that men and women are the same, that they're driven by the same things, they seek the same goals, then you, you are necessarily eroding the need for men and women to each play to their own, uh, their own strengths. It's also true, for example, that that uh, that women tend to be just worse at certain things. I wrote in a piece on entrepreneurial and better at others, obviously, and on entrepreneurialism. There are no, there are very few n successful female entrepreneurs, and not in the sense of running small like home-based businesses. In fact, back to medieval times, that was very common. But yeah. the personality characteristics of women uh, are either not helpful or are absolute poison to successful entrepreneurship. And that's just a man. So, so if you say, well, men and women should both have careers and women should be entrepreneurs, uh, for example, 
men are just much better at being entrepreneurs, which is the reason why in a marriage, if the man, if entrepreneurship is the way that the family wants to go, the man should be the entrepreneur. Having the woman do it is just a waste of time. Speaking of entrepreneurship, part of your biography is going from being a lawyer and a clerk to starting your own business or and starting Correct. up. What did you learn over the course of your business life? Like, what were some, <laughs> like being a boss, managing people, dealing with the market. Like, what are some of the wisdoms? Well, do, that... do you have a couple hours? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can talk about this endlessly, but I, I think um, I learned an awful lot by running a business. So I used to be a mergers and acquisitions lawyer, but uh, and I have a couple pieces on my, my site about this, but the I used to be a mergers and acquisitions lawyer, but uh, in Chicago, but that you know, it wasn't going to make me rich. I mean, it would have got me a comfortable income. It did get me a comfortable income, but you know, I, I've always wanted to be rich. And so I, I started a shampoo making business from scratch, basically, and, and not because I knew anything about shampoo. It just so happened for reasons which I've explained elsewhere. The um, the uh, I've learned all sorts of lessons, but I would say that the number one lesson for someone interested in entrepreneurship is that uh, the key to success in entrepreneurship is not your education, it's not raising money, it's not any of things that people typically will point to. The 90% the of success in entrepreneurship is simply the ability to get things done. And most people just can't do that. Why? I just don't understand. So when I say get things done, I mean, if you make a list of 10 things that need to be done by 3 p.m., all 10 are done by 3 p.m., most people can't do this, whether it's, you know, it's not exactly procrastination or what have you. They also can't like even create the list. They're passive. They, I mean, this is it's not just a question of getting things done. There's probably personality characteristics that are adjacent to this. But if you are the kind of person that can get things done, then if you're a doer, then you are likely to be successful in entrepreneurship as most people aren't that way. No guarantees and don't start a restaurant. Starting a restaurant is the worst entrepreneurial idea ever. Don't do it. But uh, there are, and there probably are other bad entrepreneurial ideas, like starting a Twitter competitor, for example, is not what I would recommend for people for their for their for their entrepreneurial idea. And in general, I would stay away from tech. Uh, I mean, I did, I did manufacturing, light manufacturing, and I think that there's a lot to be said for that. But but I'm biased. But uh, uh, there's much. I mean. I'm happy to answer specific questions on it. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the, no about, the number one just thing. Just to, to nail into it, about being a boss, about being in charge of company and being in charge of other people. Like what we're like. You have to have a certain personality. Um, it's as my wife, uh, my wife likes to say, people, speaking of me, people either love you or they hate you. And I, and I always joke, I hope that's not just code for everybody hates you. Um, <laughs> but no, the um, I was fortunate that I'm a terrible manager. Like, I don't like to manage people. I don't want to hear about your day. I don't want to do 360 reviews. I don't want to help you with your career. I want you to do the crap I pay you top dollar for, do it well, and that, and ask me if you have any questions. So I think as a boss, it took me a while to understand this, but the, the number one thing that employees want, whether they're high-level partner-type employees or just you know some guy who's, who's on the floor making 15 bucks an hour, you they want a boss who is uh, predictable and decisive. Now, predictable can be, you don't want to be too predictable. I used to like deliberately lose my temper once a year just, just, just on principle to show that it could be done. But short of that, they want someone who's decisive. Most people simply aren't decisive. And 
you know, I, I like yeah. to say I don't have a lot of quality thoughts, but I do have an extremely large amount of extremely rapid thoughts, and I'm extremely decisive. So all an employee wants, you know, if he or she comes to you and asks a question, is an answer. Doesn't want a long disquisition, doesn't want to be asked, you know, well, what do you think? Let's talk about your feelings. No, no one wants that. They want, they want an answer. And by the same token, they want to know what we are doing here. So the company I, I, I ran was a shampoo company called Mansfield King Shampoo and, and Hair Care. And we used to, well, it was a joke, but it wasn't a joke. If you asked any of the employees or any of the higher level employees, what is the mission statement of Mansfield King? Outsiders would expect some, you know, we're going to make the world a better place, whatever. The, the, they, would, they would respond, the mission statement of Mansfield King is to put sweet cash in the pocket of Charles Haywood. Uh, I mean, that's the purpose of this company. Make Haywood rich. Everybody okay. knows it. You get up in my, Haywood doesn't care about world peace, doesn't care about it. Make Haywood rich. Uh, and, and so, but most people won't talk straight that way. Employees value this. They, they don't want to hear some, I mean, Treating people like they're stupid is always a huge mistake. And you see this all the time. Like, mm. very, I think lawyers, I'm kind of treading for our field, but I think lawyers, if they can overcome risk aversion, tend to make good entrepreneurs because they can get things done. But what they tend to be very bad at is interrelating with people who are very different than them. You know, basically blue-collar workers or people, you know, people who are you know, of a different social class. And, but... And I, I come across as kind of hoity-toity, obviously, I use big words and so on and so forth. But the, the, the key to t dealing with people who are of a different social class is simply not to try to uh, pretend to be something you're not and to give people just plain, simple respect. That is, you don't give people respect by talking down to them like they're stupid. You're yourself, they're their self, and everybody's happy. And so, I, and, 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 they, and people, you don't, the people don't want to mo you to modify your behavior. It, people are happy to, to know what the mission statement of the company is. Mm -hmm. I, I want to pick out, like, making Charles Haywood rich. Is this like a greed <laughs> is good kind of? Is, 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 is richness the, the end in itself? Like, why be rich? I mean, it, there's obvious reasons to it, but like, there's got to be a content there. Especially sure. well, if it's I tied mean, to your Christianity. Uh, as the old joke goes, I've been poor and I've been rich. And, you know, it is true that rich is better. Uh, but the, um, uh, the, for me, I actually wrote a long piece on St. John Chrysostom in the fourth century wrote a book or rather it's a series of sermons called on wealth and poverty which i actually did a review of last year or early this year uh, so there's definitely a religious overlay to to uh to wealth i mean in the christian context wealth is historically extremely problematic and so there's a lot to, lot to unpack there but on a strictly secular basis the purpose of being wealthy is to be independent that is, you know, I can write under my own name because I'm, I'm entirely uncancelable. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, they're, uh, short of like shooting me, there's, there's basically no way to get at me. I, I have, I'm a completely, you know, skeleton-free person who doesn't need your money and doesn't have a job. <laughs> so it's very hard to, to put Haywood out of business because I just, you know, can say whatever I want, and that, that's something that is impossible without having money. And there's other things you can do with money. Uh, but yeah, I actually spend less money now. That I've sold, I sold the business a couple of years ago. I spend less money now because yeah, what is there to buy? I mean, I have a house and I have, I mean, so bizarrely, you, you, I worked for 
two decades to make a bunch of money, and that's great. I like money. I like money, as this says in Idiocracy. But it's, uh, it, 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 I actually don't spend that much money. Maybe someday. I, I also assume that all my money will just disappear someday along with the federal government. So there's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, with <laughs> the independence that you've gained through being filthy you can say rich, or rich. <laughs> inordinately wealthy, um, you started your project, The Worthy House. Yes. You entered into a, uh, what, what is the, like, what was the goal when you began that? And like with this phase of your life, what, what are the things that you're learning and plugging into, especially not just with writers past, cause you do a lot of book reviews, book reviews, but also you're now in contact with a lot of public intellectuals. You're, you're engaging sure. with people now. So like when you began, what did you think you were doing and, and what have you discovered that you're doing as you've done it? Well, when I began, you know, I, I was doing it anonymously, just on, under my first name, and I, only, I started writing book reviews, which initially were more book reviews than, than they are now. Now they tend to be launch pads for my ranting about one thing or another. But I originally started doing book reviews so I would remember the books that I read because I do not have a good memory, and so writing book reviews helped me to fix in my mind the, the things that, that I read. But over time, it's become more political, obviously, and is part of an overall political philosophical framework. Um, and then... When I sold the business and became uncancelable, I started doing it under my own name, which obviously gives you more reach and you get make more contacts with people. So, you know, I'm a small fish in a in a small pond of the internet, and but I have more contacts than I used to with with uh, a lot people who are bigger names and much more important people. But I do it basically with giggles, in the sense that uh, like I'm not looking to. I, to monetize it. Uh, I'm not looking to, I don't want a job in the next administration of, you know, President X. I, I would never move. I don't go to conferences except very rarely or go to, you know, events or, you know, NatCon this or NatCon that or, or what have you. I maintain contacts with a fairly large range of people. But basically, most of my time is spent being a hobby farmer nowadays. Uh, I, I, I have chickens. I'm probably going to have small cattle. I, I run a bunch of uh, pasture crops. Well, not pasture crops, field crops. And, um, and I basically spend my time being a hobby farmer waiting for, uh, I don't want to sound apocalyptic, but waiting for... Go ahead and do it. Well, wait, waiting for for the uh, the spicy times to come, right? the spiciness, the nature of the spiciness to be determined. But I basically have this giant compound where I, I sit on it and am, am autarkic. Uh, I mean, that's what I do, and and it's it's kind of fun. I, I spend time on Twitter and I write stuff and I, I talk mm -hmm. to people, and I think that's amusing. But back to our earlier point, I'm not trying to change the world in the sense of like what what I do is meant to help inform other people about. Uh, a, what I think is a useful way of looking at the world, both in terms of the information and philosophically. And uh, hopefully that is a benefit to the world. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy uh, learning from other people as well. But like, I don't have plans. People occasionally ask me, am I going to do X, Y, or Z, or have, a, I don't know, go into politics or, or form some kind of organization no, I'm not going to form some. I mean, not now. Uh, I am. Uh, I occasionally think I should have like a organization in waiting so I can raise my warlord flag someday. But that seems like mm -hmm. seems like a lot of work. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I may have a few few things along those lines. But but nothing uh, nothing too uh, too specific. <laughs> so it's it sounds like <laughs> you you had your ambitious project, which was to get rich, and you've mm -hmm. done that, and now you're surveying the land and just managing things and then issuing your little um, 
pamphlets out in the world. <laughs> but what have you what have you learned? What 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 are you seeing? What what have you discovered in doing that? Have your ideas already been always been kind of basically left and right as they are now, and then just being fleshed yeah, out by I the mean, thinkers that you're. What, uh, so what have I learned personally? You mean? Yeah. As yeah, I mean, uh, I've always been kind of on the right side of the spectrum. The I'm old enough that I uh, kind of came to political age when Ronald Reagan was still president. And you know, in retrospect, Ronald Reagan didn't really do us any favors. Uh, and nostalgia for Ronald Reagan should not be encouraged. But it was a very different time. So I've kind of seen the entire arc of things. So, for example, uh, reading Christopher Rufo's new book where he talks about Derrick Bell and these people in critical race theory in the early 90s. I remember that. I remember distinctly how when I was going to law school, in the early 1990s, these ideas of Derrick Bell were, the, in fact, this this fringe thing. And in, in, I went to the University of Chicago when we, we used to make fun of the people at Harvard because everyone at Harvard hated each other and the professors all hated each other. And it was you know, had a very poisonous atmosphere. And we congratulated ourselves on across the political spectrum, all getting along with each other. I, I doubt very much if, if that's the way it still is at the University of Chicago, because the, the Harvard poison that Rufo identifies in his book spread throughout the land. But I, I think um, I don't know, I've learned I've learned all sorts of things. I haven't really changed my position of being on the right-hand side of the spectrum. I think my position has become more antithetical to the, uh, very antithetical to the entire existing uniparty apparatus. That is, I, even like as I'm very ashamed to admit this, I was a strong supporter of George W. Bush in like 2000 and 2004. I'm like, yes, George Bush is going to make it all happen for us. Hmm. I, I, I cringe kind of when I when I hear myself saying that. And now I tend to whenever I mention George W. Bush, I add God rot him in parentheses uh, after it. But the so I think I've become hostile to the existing political order across the board, even the putatively right wing political order in almost all of it, but not 100 percent, but almost all of its manifestations, regarding it all as kind of the rotten excrescence of a late stage empire regime. So that the you know, Haywood of 2005 would have found that to be excessively radical. But Haywood of 2023 thinks, well, that's just kind of obvious. I mean, and it's historically obvious. And it's I was thinking this morning, talking to my wife, actually, that you know, all this stuff with Hunter Biden and the corruption of Joe Biden taking, I mean, all, all these things are obvious and no one cares about them. But it, maybe that's not that startling as you'd think. Maybe that's just the natural order of things. I mean, if someone described all this happening in, you know, Equatorial Guinea, wherever that is, I imagine it's on the equator, given its name. If someone described this kind of stuff happening in Equatorial Guinea, we wouldn't think anything of it. Maybe that's just where we are. We're at the stage where it's not like some kind of tragedy, that, that everything is stupid and that the, the ruling class is corrupt. It's just it's just the natural order of man. And the exception is is the thing that we're we're complaining about. It's gone. I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I think all these people should be defenestrated and you know put in camps in Idaho for reeducation to pick sugar beets or something. And uh, and then gradually reintroduced the population as menial laborers. But the, the it's not a surprise that a, a late stage empire regime acts in this way and getting all upset about it is kind of silly at some level. That doesn't mean I'm not upset about it, but it it is true that it's the norm more than the exception. So I think I've learned things like that is the point. Uh, I think the um, 
Uh, so I, I, I've become probably, I mean, more, I'm more radical in that sense. Uh, I mean, I like Lenin, but I'm not, like, I'm not, I don't want to be Lenin. Uh, but part of the reason is like, uh, I would make a terrible, a terrible kind of dictator because the, I'm, I'll be okay being like a lo, lo, kind of local level warlord in the right circumstances, but fundamentally I'm too religious to want to be a, a dictator. Dictator has to be someone who's comfortable basically killing a lot of people and worrying about his his relationship with with God later. I would be worried all the time, like every time I did something that ended in people being hurt, that Christ was going to judge me harshly for it. So I, I, that kind of makes me a weenie, I guess. But nonetheless, that, that's the way I approach it. So I guess I've learned that, too, that, I, that I'm never going to be I'm never going to be a dictator or king or anything like that. I'm just going to be some scribbler on the Internet with maybe a local presence. One of your um not themes, but one of the writers that you've pretty much gone through almost all of his corpus is Charles Schmidt. Yes. And, and I, go, I go to you when I, when I need to deal with Schmidt, because um, <laughs> you give a good precise of him. Why Schmidt, and what other thinkers do you continually return to that you think need to be brought back or brought up again? Schmidt is the, is the prophet of... Uh, political realism in the technological parliamentary age. So the, the the reason that Schmidt is is valuable is because he is uh, he both avoids kind of the ideological blinders that are universal in American society, uh, are not universal in European society. But so there probably are other people in European political philosophy who who might write along the same lines. But he, he wrote a lot and a tremendous amount of things that for maybe just randomly, are of increasing applicability today. So some of those relate to the question of why uh, he has this book, The Crisis of Parliamentary Democracy, in which he discusses, obviously in the context of uh, early 20th century Germany, the problems with parliamentarianism within a nation that's very divided. Those things, and what he meant by parliamentarianism is not exactly the same thing that we have, but the, the, the thoughts he has on these topics are extremely valuable. He also ha it talks a lot, for example, about the, um, the, ideolo the, the problems with ideologies that, with totalizing ideologies that necessarily mean that every conflict ends up in total war. The, and she, people frequently you know, casually quote Schmidt for the friend-enemy distinction, thinking that 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 the uh, that what Schmidt w meant was that friends and enemies have to be distinct and therefore exterminate each other. That wasn't what he meant at all. I mean, so he had he, Schmidt is a very subtle thinker, and there's lots of details which I try to go through uh, in my pieces. His point was that you can't. Well, one of his points was that it's the the. Uh, I think the phrase is something like the specific distinction in, in uh, that uh, is not essential for, but the, the most important distinction in, in politics is that between friend and enemy, because that determines uh, the, the fault lines. And he has a lot of things to say from that. But my point is that this is all a realist approach to things, as opposed to what we get typically in America today and have since at least the beginning of the 20th century, and we were infected before then, which is not a realist perspective. This idea uh, on the right, for example, that America is a propositional nation, that all that matters is that everybody subscribed to the principles of the founding fathers, and then nothing else matters. There's no other axis on which people can be divided uh, into friend and enemy. Or on the left-wing side of things, they have a utopian ideology, where those two characteristics you mentioned at the beginning are designed 
not just to be good enough themselves, but to create a utopia. And you have to understand that, some, that certain conflicts are simply irresolvable. And of course, the most famous, well, maybe friend-enemy distinction is the most often quoted thing about Schmidt, though, as I say, not astutely. But the, the, the classic uh, Schmidtism is, of course, sovereign is he who decides the state of exception. And this is the kind of thing that I think is a great play in the modern West, because uh, we have an awful lot of pretenders deciding on an awful lot of different states of exception, and uh, how exactly that interacts, that interplay will will manifest itself ultimately in kind of a final political disposition remains to be seen. But the the times that Schmidt were writing in, basically the 1920s and 1930s in Germany, which were times of chaos up until relatively recently in America, didn't seem to have a lot of bearing on us, right? I mean, what, what does Weimar Germany have to do with, with modern America? I mean, we're America, that's long gone, it led to Hitler, it was bad. <laughs> you know? I mean, that, but you know, we can now see that, that we increasingly adopt the, not just the social and cultural, but more to the point, the political characteristics of Weimar Germany. Uh, locuses of authority that are unclear, a wide variety of, of chaos. We haven't really hit the political violence part, but I mean, that's, if history is any guide, political violence is the next is the next uh, next step. And so Schmidt's thoughts on sovereignty and who, decisionism, that is how one should resolve some of these conflicts, I think are going to be of increasing value in the uh, up, in upcoming years. Well, to aim at the resolution, um, I just want to kind of open up the conversation a little bit. So, par parliamentarianism, um, what you're the which is the assumption that people can just hash out differences. Like we'll we'll represent these uh, noble Discussion. aristocrats that'll go and they'll talk through things and reason will win the day. And then opposed to that is this totalitarianism, which will enforce whoever wins wins totally and completely crushes all. All the first part's right, but the second part's not. So, I mean, the, the, the Schmidt's complaint about parliament, parliamentarianism and, and the kind of the locus of his complaint about the crisis. Though, in fairness, the he doesn't use the word crisis in his book. The title is actually mistranslated from German. Um, but the uh, it's more like the situation of today's uh, today's parliamentary democracy. I forget the German word. I don't speak German that well, but I speak bits and pieces. And... Um, and uh, he, that he called it the endless discussion. Uh, and this is also related to his earlier book of his political romanticism, where he basically complained that modern politics consisted of discussion. And that the point, the parliament, the point of being a parliamentary system was that discussion would end up with the uh, with the would lead correct to the best answer. decision. Right, exactly. So on average, we come, but then in practice, this does not work, and in fact, it, it was it was just a disaster. But it, 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 Schmidt was never. Schmidt did a lot of different things, so it's sometimes hard to say what exactly Schmidt thought. And he was a notorious self-promoter and social, not so much social climber, but political climber and so on, which is, he has a very bad reputation because when Hitler came to power, he eagerly jumped on that bandwagon too. But it was mostly because he didn't have any, he did have political principles, but he was keenly interested in advancing himself. So sometimes it's hard to think, hard to say what he, what he really thought, and he changed his mind a bunch as well. But 
he certainly wasn't an advocate of totalitarianism. I mean, totalitarianism in the modern sense means state control of people's lives, uh, or Mussolini's nothing outside the state, everything within the state kind of stuff. Now, Schmidt's point was that that in in uh, exceptional circumstances, there's no mechanism to make decisions except uh, someone basically deciding I am going to make the decision and imposing it on other people. Not that that person should then even continue ruling necessarily. In many cases, for example, uh, Schmidt suggested that the um, the uh, Reich president make certain decisions that were outside the Constitution because they were necessary to preserve the German nation. But he wasn't suggesting the Reich president should then every, every Tuesday issue a raft of decrees ordering the nation. He was merely saying in this narrow situation, it's imperative a decision be made that is outside of the four corners of the Constitution in order to preserve the Constitution. And the Weimar Constitution was a notoriously complex document with contradictions and, and what have you. And, and he had a lot, lot to say about that. But his, his point was that what we can't do is we can't point to some abstract set of principles or we can't rely on discussion among people, even of goodwill, much less of ill will, in order to produce a situation or a decision that is best for a nation. And you know, I think that if we look around us, this is pretty obvious. He did not say, however, that any decision was going to be better than those things. I mean, if we have Joe Biden making decisions, they're probably worse than no decision at all, right? I mean, this is kind of obvious. Yeah. He wasn't saying that this is going to lead to human happiness. Schmidt probably wasn't going to recommend anything was going to guarantee happiness. He was merely looking for something that, and this is, I think, another important political philosophy point, which is core to my own thinking, which is there is no utopia. We're always going to have not just problems, because problems arise externally, but we're going to have failures and injustices and all sorts of things that are that are need to be corrected and should be corrected. And for example, in certain systems that are not democratic are easier to correct. Historically, when you have a king, for example, certain injustices are easier to correct. That's not necessarily to say that monarchy is the best, but correcting injustice is important. But injustice is always going to happen. There's no political system in which injustice just magically disappears, which, of course, is the claim of the left. Mm -hmm. and, what, and what about some of the resolutions or uh, the positives that Schmidt provides other than beyond the critique of what he's looking at? Well, I think the um, uh, the critique is is one thing, but I think his uh, his resolution. Like, I, mean, I mean, I've kind of said it already. I, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to unnecessarily repeat myself, but I think his his resolution is to uh, to understand that the in all political systems there comes a moment at which the existing political system does not generate an answer that solves a crisis of itself. And at that point, someone, someone not external to the system, perhaps someone existing within the system now, but someone outside of whatever the governing other documents, or in the case of an unwritten constitution, understandings are, has to make a decision in order for the polity to continue as a functioning polity and not to degenerate into civil war. Schmidt was extremely focused on avoiding civil war. And mm. it, we kind of, again, this is something that probably seems more alive to us than it did even 10 years ago. But in 1930s Germany, this was obviously a live possibility because you had the extreme right wing and the extreme left wing 
literally fighting battles in the street and you had you had other things which are lesser known uh in, in the ger various german lender the v german states uh fighting each not fighting each other but various forms of civil conflict and the finding a path through this that uh was not simply fighting wars was the most important thing to schmidt and so i think the studying schmidt helps us in this process because otherwise hope is not a plan and most of americans are grossly uneducated grossly undisciplined i think america has a bright future i'm an optimist in that sense but there needs to be a lot of uh under you need to understand that americans are largely adrift and have no idea about either history or politics or anything that uh that matters so uh, assuming somehow that by crowdsourcing to the American public what our politics should look like will end up in a good result is the kind of thing that Schmidt would have laughed at because what you, because that's not what happens. What you need to do is you have to, need to have the right people make the right decisions at the right time, which of course is easier said than done. Yeah. When you think of America, um, we're, we're a huge country. And, and we're a lot more diverse than we think. I mean, just culturally, from California to New Orleans to Indiana. To, and we had times where we were more unified ideologically. We were a Christian nation. We're not necessarily a Christian nation now. We're kind of a post-Christian nation. Do you think that America could, can or will survive as America? Do you see fractures being the better uh, path forward, if possible, with yeah, like our it, military it, and... If I was in the predicting game, I would say there's almost no chance America survives as America, uh, simply because it's it's it only works at scale uh, if it has a higher degree of unity than it does now, or that it is likely to be able to regain. And that would be true even if our ruling classes, uh, both politically and in other areas, weren't completely rotten uh, on a and any number of. Of axes, there's just there's diversity is not our strength, and as you say, Americans are diverse in so many ways that that, that is is problematic. You can get away with it uh, for a certain period of time in ideal historical circumstances, say the past well, eighty years. So the past fifty years have been heading downhill rapidly, but I think people think that that's somehow the norm when that's really the exception. So if I was in the predicting game, it seems to me that the the only viable future for America is to be the lands formerly known as America um, and for for us to give up our empire and to and to fracture into a uh, smaller set of, of countries. Again, that sounds kind of glib and dry and in practice these things are extremely painful usually extremely violent uh very difficult not tend not to be permanent fixes um though they can be in some cases so i think that's a that's a uh, the the most likely future for uh for america these things i always like to say major historical changes are uh, step functions, right? Like you say that and you, I say that and people are like, well, what's the path from here to there? But it's not like a smooth continuum where like one day you have an additional state. It's a stair step, right? One day we wake up and everything's different, usually due to some kind of external shock. I suppose if the, the aliens land uh, and and start fighting fighting us, then America can unite as in its new common goal of defeating the, uh, the tentacled aliens. But since I don't believe in it, uh, I think the chances that there are any 
intelligent aliens are pretty low. And I'm quite certain that whenever they're presenting in Congress today about aliens is total BS. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that America is not going to unify to defeat the, uh, the alien threat. Yeah. But within your uh, philosophy, your working philosophy, foundationalism, you do, it's not a plan and it's not quite hope, but you do propose a great work as uh, like an external goal, like yes. space exploration or sea exploration or something like that. Space so exploration. So I'm barring a, uh, that you don't think that America can unify if there's I nothing don't think, above us. I don't think America and its current incarnation can unify around space exploration. I would anticipate that the tenets of foundationalism, uh, it, which is meant as an applied political philosophy. And so the idea is that you know, I, I create these thought experiments or set of thoughts to offer to, to people who, who may find them of value and have the power to implement some or all of these things, which, as I say, doesn't seem likely it's going to me, be me. But hey, well, never can tell. Maybe I will end up being king. And uh, maybe, I should, maybe I was overly negative about being king earlier. Maybe now I'm swinging back to the positive. But no one's offered me the crown lately, unfortunately. And uh, I think that you could easily imagine a successor nation. I don't think America is going to fit up and split up into 50 different nations, like you know, the king, the kingdom of Rhode Island. I mean, that's just silly. But there are there are certain natural division lines within America that would make sense. You could easily imagine an America which cons cons consists of a significant portion of uh, of old America hopefully has a good relationship with, with other states, maybe works collectively on certain goals with other successor nations, for lack of a better term, and works on space exploration. The problem is that we'd have to con completely replace our existing elites for this to happen. Uh, I think your average person you, you would just have to be re-educated in a sense, not re-educated, I, I don't mean in camps, like in the communist sense, I mean adopt the new modes and orders. But we'd have to completely get rid of our elites, like we'd, we'd put all our elites in California, and then we'd like dig a giant trench and and, uh, and not let them swim across it, and they could you know do what they wanted over there. And meanwhile, we could accomplish <coughs> things, uh, since Elon Musk will be in Texas, we can, we can continue uh, launching space vehicles and so on. But uh, in all seriousness, I'm a big fan of space exploration because it is a binding, unifying goal for a nation. And that's something that we simply have not had for a long time. And I, I doubt if it's possible to run a, a nation without that. I mean, if you're Putin, for example, you try to substitute you know, Russian greatness and orthodoxy and so on. And those things are good up to a point in terms of producing national unity and then you know, you have special military operations to you know spicing it up a bit or whatever but it, I, I i don't think that is going to create a a great civilization you, you i think space exploration is the only thing left that can accomplish that that's a whole you'd have to invent some new technology to make it uh to make it feasible and i've written at length on why it is we have declining technology in essence um so there's a long road from here to there, but I think that's an important goal. Whether or not we'll achieve it is hard to say. But then, of course, as Yogi Berra supposedly said, predictions are hard, especially about the future. Switching gears a little bit, and since I have you on the line, why Christianity? Why is Christianity true for you? Like, what's why the content? Is, of it's faith? true for everybody, not just true for me. <laughs> I mean, um, well, I'm not an apologist in the sense, an apologist meaning someone who. Uh, who uh, goes around convincing other people about uh, about Christianity? But I think that uh, that I mean, on a strictly personal level, Christianity strikes me as um, 
obviously true. I obviously can't you know, replicate that for for other people. Uh, so I mean, I just you know, from a personal level, I believe in Christianity because I believe in Christianity, and that that's of course circular. I think there's plenty of evidence that Christianity is uh, is true as well. But ultimately, you're, you're, I'm not one of these people who thinks that you can you can look in the archaeological record and prove Christianity that way. I think from a societal perspective, Christianity is associated with the the flourishing of the West, which is the only civilization that has ever accomplished anything of note, in the sense that uh, if, if it wasn't for Europe, we would all be living in the world of the 1400s. I mean, there's no evidence whatsoever that, that for example, the Chinese would have ever developed anything beyond uh, what they did. And, uh, and you, know, you look at China now, and China looks pretty good compared to the West. It's not at all. But I haven't studied it lately, but certainly it was true as of like 10 years ago. Chinese innovation is essentially non-existent. Uh, they're extremely good at executing in the entrepreneurial sense, but I, I don't see that. The, I mean, you can never tell. Maybe the Chinese would have come up with the Industrial Revolution and what have you. But I think my point is that Christianity is interwoven with the West and it's Christianity's good, aside from its truth, simply because it has a past record of inspiring a flourishing civilization, whereas other religions do not. It's, obviously, it's hard to separate out causation and correlation there, but I think uh, I think those two things fit together. So in my mind, that's why I recommend Christianity for the uh, for the civilization. I will say, though, for the future flourishing civilization under foundationalism. But, uh, you know, you could imagine a new religion. I don't. You know, I'm not looking to start a new religion, but much stranger things have happened than the new religions inspiring new civilizations. And in fact, not the stranger things. That's the the normal course of things. If you read uh, Arnold Toynbee or someone, that's that's the entire his entire mechanism for civilizational rise, stultification, and decline. Or you can imagine a, a variation on it. I, I once saw a uh, a map. You know, one of those maps where like the time lapse maps over time that show the growing of different populations mm -hmm. and it showed uh, basically took the current trends and showed how by 2150 or something on current trends, all of the Western United States would be uh, Mormon, all of the Eastern United States would be uh, Amish, and then said something about the Great Amish Mormon War of 2150 or something. <laughs> so, so you can imagine so one of those existing religions uh, becoming. I think that it, we're extremely unlikely to have any civilizational rebirth without a religious reawakening of some type. Mm -hmm. Why do you think? Christianity is coupled or inspires innovation. How does it? What's the feedback look like? Um, you know the. Uh, that's actually a good question. Let me think about this for a second. Um, the hi, historically, and this is not original to me. People have pointed this out. The a large part of, uh, say, mid medieval Europe, uh, the economic rise of mid medieval Europe was driven in part by the long-term view of monasteries. So, for example, the first great major public works projects, like draining of marshes, were undertaken by monasteries because they had a corporate view of the world. That is, the individual monk didn't matter. So I'll start this drainage project. You know, I'm going to die, but who cares? You know, my, you know, my successors will finish this, this project. And I think Christianity in general uh, seems to encourage a... Uh, an, a combination of individualism 
uh, but individualism exercised for the common good with a goal of uh, of obviously ultimately reaching theosis and you know, divinization in the Orthodox Church with union with God, but that you're expected to do these things on earth for the glory of God. And the Western Europeans did this more than the, uh, or the Western uh, Christendom did this more than Eastern Christendom. It, it, so I don't know if it's inherent necessarily Christianity. That is, if you could ask Christ what, what he thought of this philosophy, it's not clear what he'd say. But nonetheless, the, the Western Christians clearly intertwined individual achievement with societal achievement with honoring God. And the prototypical example of that is cathedrals, but there were many other examples. And by the same token, they went in for colonization exploration in part for for that reason. And uh, this kind of, there's a guy named David Gress, who's not famous, but he wrote a book that I reviewed a while ago. And he has one of my favorite quotes, which I quote all the time. He, he was talking about Cortez conquering Mexico. And he said, Cortez conquered Mexico for God, gold, and glory. And only a mundane imagination would distinguish among those impulses, for they were one and the same. Uh, so I think the, the Western the Christianity tends to wrap these things which are disparate together in a societally winning package. Again, I'm not sure Christ is, is sitting there nodding his head in approval saying, yeah, that's the way to go. You go, Cortez. <laughs> but that nonetheless, as a societal accomplishment, you know, Cortez's accomplishments are, are, are second to none or second to very few in, in Western history. Yeah, I, that perfectly summarizes uh, what we've talked about today. Uh, your, your love of God, your love of glory, and, and your love of gold. <laughs> yeah, I, that's probably why I keep repeating the quote. So I, I, it's probably my favorite, I don't know, my favorite quote of all time, but it's certainly in the top five. Hmm. What flavor of Christianity have you gravitated to? Orthodox. So my, my family and I converted to Orthodox. We attended Greek Orthodox Church, but you know Eastern Orthodox Christianity, which is kind of the the you know coming thing on the right. I was raised Roman Catholic and was was uh, you know, quite you know, raised a very Orthodox, small Orthodox Roman Catholic, and then uh, my wife was not. But we eventually uh, ended up. Uh, in Eastern Orthodoxy, which is a lot of kind of people on the right uh, gra gravitate to Orthodoxy because it's it hasn't been infected to any significant degree with left wing stuff. It's the only modern Christian church that's even remotely masculine. Um, it doesn't have the uh, let's say uh, sexual problems of the uh, Roman Catholic Church does in some areas, and it uh, it it's, but it, it, even aside from that, it's it's masculinized to a degree that modern Christianity uh, isn't, and it's um. It's it, it doesn't show much signs of being corrupted by by modernity. So that's why people tend to end up there kind of on a political basis. But honestly, I mean, we like the Orthodox Church simply because there's more Christ in the Orthodox Church than you find in, in other modern American churches. See, Christ is the centerpiece as opposed to something else. They don't talk about politics. It's not like they sit around hectoring you about politics. They, <laughs> I mean, the, the liturgy the Orthodox use is not entirely the same, but if John Chrysostom showed up from the fourth century, he would recognize what they were doing. <laughs> so that gives you a kind of long-term view that is actually pretty satisfying in the modern world. Not that mm -hmm. personal satisfaction is the gauge of how one should pick one's church, but but that's kind of how we came to it. Well, what what do you see? What is who is Christ, and like how how is how is he depicted, or how are you brought closer to Christ? Right. Well, Christ is the second person of the Triune God. For those keeping score at home, <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. Um, sorry, that was that was a, 
I'm not sure if that joke was inappropriate or not, but uh, um, the the obviously Christianity is supposed to be centered around Christ, but modern Christianity, to prototypically what is referred to as moralistic therapeutic deism, is not centered around Christ, but rather centered around the individual's satisfaction and, to use the term again, self-actualization, rather than than Christ is uh, Christ is you. Know, died for you, and I'll come back to that in a second, Christ is God, part of the triune God, and this is how he wants you to live your life, and this is how, this is your goal is theosis, that is union, divinization, actual union with God, or with, technically with the energies of God rather than the essence of God. And I mean, this is a very kind of basic Christian set of beliefs that's been lost, essentially, when among the megachurches and what have you. I will say, however, that, and this is a little bit inside baseball for, for uh, Catholics and, and Orthodox, the view of Christ in the Orthodox Church is very different than it tends to be in Western Christendom, not doctrinally, but rather in emphasis. That is, the, the Roman Catholics in particular tend to view Christ's death on the cross and his suffering is somehow redemptive, and the emphasis is on how much Christ suffered. Whereas the Orthodox uh, tend to, uh, obviously Christ suffered for us, but view it as Christ victor. That is, Christ is the is the king who de defeated death and uh, and opened the gates of heaven for everybody by you know, going down to Hades and you know, literally kicking the devil around. <laughs> it's a much more kind of uh, aggressive approach and less passive, and I think that, that leads a little bit to the distinction between uh, the, the feminine and masculine emphases. That said, I mean, the, the Orthodox, like all Christianity, are, and this goes back to our earlier discussion, both men and women, and men and women saints, icons and saints are extremely important to the Orthodox, and there are you know, endless amounts of both male and female saints. There's no, like, male, male saints are better or more numerous or something like that. The, the, this is a complementary set of spheres in the church, as well as I, I advocate in society, and that sometimes get lo gets lost. I mean, I don't really follow uh, Protestant uh, churches. I mean, I have Protestant friends. I know I, I went to a Dutch Reformed elementary school, so I, I know something about Reformed theology, but a lot of these kind of debates about the role of men and women, uh, I just don't follow because it's kind of beyond my ken. Hmm. So looking forward, do you, you do a lot of essays. Do you think you'll be moving into like a book length project? Or That's like a great a question. I, I have, I've teased a foundationalism book. I mean, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be 500 pages. It'd be, you know, 150 pages or something. Uh, and for a while, I wasn't like, I'm not sure I, it's worth doing. And now I'm kind of thinking I, I, I should do it. So I don't have a book in the hopper. I have some some outlines and so on. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking a foundationalism book might not be, be bad. I mean, I don't think it'd be a bestseller. But given how miserable, like, Patrick Deneen's regime change book that came out a couple of weeks was, uh, you know, I think someone has to do uh, has to do a good book. So maybe I will. Maybe Should I? Uh, vote of one. Yes or no? I would like it, especially okay. if it's illustrated with, like, <laughs> depictions of warriors conquering dragons and stuff like that. Uh, do you know who uh, Jonathan Peugeot is? Yeah. So maybe I can get Peugeot or his brother. I think they do illustrations together. Maybe I get him to do some uh, like some based illustrations for it. Yeah. Any other good. recommendations for current thinkers that you find uh, electric or opening up? Um, that's actually an interesting question. Um, I I of course think very little of most politicians. So we can drop all all politicians. And I think P Jordan Peterson is unfortunately 
fallen by the uh, the wayside. I do think that some of the kind of uh, politically oriented people on the right, like the Blaze, uh, you know, TV network or whatever it is, with Matthew Peterson, uh, had that very successful thing with. Uh, with uh, <laughs> the Republican candidates and uh, the you know, soon-to-be former candidate Mike Pence, who lives quite close to me, uh, and uh, not that we hang out, and um, so I, I think there's a, some exciting people on the right in in that sphere. There's an outfit called New Founding, run by a guy named Nate Fisher, that's doing a lot of good work on uh, kind of uh, career type networks and business type networks. Um, in terms of thinkers and like philosophical thinkers you know i um and this one uh you know i don't know um i listen to a lot of different people you know i, I listen to the bronze age pervert podcast and and, and what have you and I, I find all this stuff interesting but i think mo dr seuss has a book what wasn't his, his name was what was his real name seuss remember dr seuss you know yeah, dr. Know. Seuss. yeah. I can't she has this book that. i can't remember which book it is but he talks about the waiting place where like it's all the all the places you'll go and it says all the places you'll go except if you end up in the waiting place and you're just sitting around waiting and I mean, he does it better than me with, with illustrations but uh, i think that we as america not just people on the right are basically in the waiting place now which is part of the reason i spend a bunch of time farming because yeah okay so i can listen to podcasts and yeah we we we, we you know, make contacts and we learn things and we educate ourselves and we prepare for the future but we're just waiting to see what's going to happen and everybody knows that 10 years from now america is going to be a very different place and some people are like well you know it's gonna be dreadful or some people are like it's gonna be great or some people uh, we just don't know and i think that the the frustration in in a lot of what we're doing and in listening to people or following thinkers is some of it seems ephemeral. Like, what does this really mean? We're just waiting to see what happens. Obviously, that's can be accused of being passive, or you know, you're you're a weakling because you won't uh, you won't get out there and march or something. But um, I think we're all just waiting. And so, I, I think my actual advice to people is: well, I would consume political content, and I think it's interesting. Now, I would definitely consume uh, like history content, like Daryl Cooper, Murder Maids, lengthy podcasts on history, which are outstanding. Uh, there's a lot of stuff. But if you if you are doing um, learning, I would focus more on the history than on the arc of the 2024 presidential election. And mm. I think everyone should get outside and do some manual work whether that's gardening or cutting down trees or what have you i think people should get out in the real world as much as possible that's really i think the, the soundest advice i can give to people which is don't spend all your time on the damn computer um do something that that's real and that'll help you in the years to come yeah so one step beyond just touching grass like dig a yes right Lay some pipe do something with the grass make something with the grass absolutely charles Excellent. I love your stuff, The Worthy House. Uh, you're the maximum leader. Do, still don't know why you call yourself that, but I love it. I, I tell my girlfriend, I'm talking to the maximum <laughs> leader today. She's like, who's that? I'm like, you'll see. Um, so thank you very much for your time. And my I'll pleasure. link everybody to your stuff. Um, and if you if you want to end with another quote, either from yourself or from um, these contentious thinkers. I'll, I, the people have probably heard this one, but I'll, I'll do a Lenin quote. So at the bottom of my website, I have seven... Uh, seven quotes that encapsulate my political philosophy, and this is this is, I believe, uh, 
uh, and this is not actually one of them, but I'll give you two Lenin quotes. One is on my site, which is, timing is everything. And the other is a Lenin quote that is often heard, which is, there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. We'll see what's going to happen this week. <laughs>